Hola amigos y amigas y familia. Welcome to Seminary for the rest of us. As always, I am your host, Sabrina Reyes-Peters. It's uh, good to be back with you after a longer period of uh, silence uh, than I would prefer, but um, I think that uh, I am struggling as many of you all are struggling uh, with uh, the balance of uh, productivity and self-kindness, uh, patience toward myself. So we keep on pressing on and I don't know about you, but I am really behind on podcast listening. And uh, so if you tell me that you haven't listened in a very long time, to this little podcast, uh, I would not be surprised or offended. Anyhow, uh, today I'm bringing to you a talk in two parts that I had a couple weeks ago with uh, Dr. Nathan Cartagena about his dissertation on Thomas Aquinas's Psychology of Fear. Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena is an assistant professor of philosophy at Wheaton College, Illinois where he teaches courses on race, justice, political philosophy, and Thomas Aquinas. Cartagena also serves as a faculty advisor for Unidad Cristiana, a student group working to enhance Christian unity and celebrate Latina and Latino cultures. Now, in this first part, uh, we we begin the discussion on Thomas Aquinas um, by learning what to expect when studying his works, why Dr. Cartagena chose to study Aquinas's psychology of fear, and an overview of this psychology of fear. Now, Dr. Cartagena makes this really approachable, so don't be afraid or intimidated by thinking, oh man, this is like some medieval philosopher, theologian that I'm just not going to understand. No, don't don't worry about that. Um, Dr. Cartagena does a really awesome job to break it down and tie it to a more contemporary concern, which is racialization and racism. Uh, And this comes up several times uh, throughout our conversation, not just in part one, but in part two. I've divided this into two parts to make it even easier to digest and listen to, so I hope you enjoy. Bienvenidos, Nathan. Welcome to the podcast. Gracias, gracias, hermana. Thank you for inviting me. This is a real treat. Yeah, uh, super excited to have you, Uh, mostly because I'm super rusty on Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) Um, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so what, so I like to start out by asking what is something you'd like people to know about you? Um, that's maybe kind of on the serious side, but like not related to your work. Sure. Uh, one, one of the things that I I'd mentioned is that throughout my life, I've struggled to navigate being multiracialized. So my mom's family uh, are Anglos. They historically hail from the U S South. Uh, some are some are even from the hills of Tennessee, so we got some hillbillies in the family. Uh, but they were uh, most of that family is going to have been socialized and trained under Jim and Jane Crow South conceptions of, of race. 
my mom wasn't born in, in South Carolina, but her mom is from South Carolina. Her father's from Northern Florida. Her parents end up moving to Colorado. Uh, but, but all of the realities of, of the South end up continuing to shape my mom's parents and in some sense shape her. And then my, my dad's family, they all hail from Puerto Rico. Um, and one of the things that I found was a great challenge is that my, my parents, neither of them had what was, they didn't have the resources necessary to help me or my siblings navigate all the craziness that comes with being multiracialized. And especially in, in New Jersey, where I spent most of my, my childhood, I was born in South Carolina. We moved and lived in, in Philly for a little bit, yeah, but then we, we more or less settled in New Jersey as my dad was working for power companies in New York, in New York City. And there, the, the racialization schemes are, are wild, especially if you're, if you're Puerto Rican, you're routinely going to be racialized as black. And so even though I'm very light skinned, I was racialized as black and I had an experience that was more similar to being African American than it was to say, if, if, you're, if you're Puerto Rican down uh, on, on La Isla, on the island, or if you're Puerto Rican and, and say in, in your Virginia. So I think it's, much of my my work comes with with working through questions that uh, that arise from that multiracialized experience where neither parent really had the resources necessary to to help me or my siblings navigate things. Both uh, I had mentioned my mom's family dealing with the the realities of being socialized under Jim and Jane Crow South, but my dad's family are, are they're dealing with the realities of of trying to assimilate and 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 pushing into visions of of what it means to be. Uh, an American and, and to be in some sense still Puerto Rican, but but more acceptable to those that are going to be Anglos. So, so that was a that was a mess. And I, I keep trying to ask, what does it look like to pursue sanctification in this racialized world in light of those experiences and, and try to uh, love my neighbors, recognizing that they're probably going through uh, at least similar questions about who they are, how to navigate the various ways in which people will see them and treat them. Yeah, that's a really important question. And I think maybe we could spend an entire another conversation discussing what it means to be half Puerto Rican, but like <laughs> in two different in two different contexts, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so what is something fun that we should know about you? Okay. So one one of the things that I'll say is uh, I I love playing with 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 my daughter, with with Miha. And uh, she and I, I have to confess, we, we have we have some serious bathroom potty humor. And there are times my poor supposed to my poor wife's like, Nathan, what are you doing teaching her this? And I I, 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 I suspect that there are times where I've been imprudent and not the most temperate. But uh, yeah, if, if you if you come around uh, the Cartagena household. You will hear all sorts of crazy jokes about rumbling and bumbles and, and uh. X, Y, and Z. Uh, but let me let me let me defend myself just a little bit now and, and say that part of that came uh, with trying to navigate potty training and all of that. Like, how do you how do you get little ones not to be as intimidated? And so I went full hawk after the potty humor and it helped, but it's also still with us. <laughs> so those, those are some things I, I think that are that are lighthearted and, and, and good to know. Yeah, that. Yeah. Um, potty training is tough. Um, I can't, I can't speak from experience, but like only from observing people. So that's all I'll say. Right. <laughs> um, but I wanted to talk to you today because um, I feel like uh, a lot of Christians um, encounter Aquinas 
maybe in passing maybe they took like philosophy 101 and they encountered like the cosmological argument uh for the Mm. existence of god right um but that's it um and for me like i remember encountering aquinas in that context and maybe in passing during seminary but like i didn't i didn't really study him in seminary um so, uh, but you did a whole dissertation on Thomas Aquinas uh, and his psychology of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get into the specifics, uh, I'm curious, um, and this is probably a two or threefold question, but mm. uh, what is important to understand about Aquinas in general? Like uh, what, yeah. what, are, what are we gonna encounter uh, when we start to study him? Oh, great question. Um, let me take a step back and, and provide a little bit of context about how I entered into sure. what's known as Thomistic studies. So I was in my first year of graduate work at Baylor University. I'd already done a master's degree at Texas A&M. I had done an undergraduate degree at Grove City College, which is in Western Pennsylvania. And in neither place did I have much exposure to Thomas Aquinas. But I'm in my first year and I have this wonderful opportunity to take a class on moral philosophy with a professor that was visiting Baylor University from Notre Dame. His name is Dr. David Solomon. He's he's now uh, a retired professor. But Dr. Solomon at one point was talking to me and he says, so Nathan, you want to be a moral philosopher, do you? And I said, yes. And he says, well, if you do, you better read Thomas Aquinas. There's no way that you could be a legitimate moral philosopher if you haven't read Thomas Aquinas. And I went, oh, wow. And then less than 24 hours later, I read an essay by this really important 20th century uh, female moral philosopher. Her name is um, Philippa Foote. And Philippa Foote, who's an atheist, says, yeah, if we're going to do well in moral philosophy, we really need to read Thomas Aquinas. And I went, okay, <laughs> I have, I have a, a committed Greek Orthodox person telling me I need to read Thomas Aquinas. And I have a, a, an atheist telling me I need to read Thomas Aquinas. It seems like I need to read Thomas Aquinas. So I decided to take some, uh, I took ended up taking two classes on Aquinas. The first one was on Aquinas's conception of uh, the Latinus caritas, so charity or, or love. What in the world does Thomas think Christian charity is about? And I was blown away because in that class, I was uh, blessed to study with the person who ended up being my dissertation advisor, uh, Dr. Robert Miner. Uh, Dr. Miner helped me to appreciate, or I'll call him Rob throughout. Uh, Rob helped me to appreciate that Thomas is first and foremost what he would call a master of the sacred page. So Thomas, first and foremost, sees himself as a commentator for the church who, who's committed to helping Christians understand what the scriptures teach because he thinks this is one of the ways through which God reveals God's self to, 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 to the world. And as a Dominican, as a, one that's part of the order of, of preachers, he's committed to making sure that, that the sermons that people are preaching to the, to the, to the faithful are as rich and, as, and, and um, God-honoring as they can be. So Thomas is first and foremost a master of the sacred page. He's, he's spending time in commentaries. He, he has a number of commentaries on, in particular, the New Testament. He has, he has a commentary on Job, too, but he comments on, on most of the, of the New Testament canon. Uh, which is the side of Thomas that most people don't get exposed to, 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 to your point, uh, Hermana. They, they, they're, they're usually reading a very small passage from the Summa that's tucked in the very beginning. Yeah. The, the prima pars that <laughs> it's important, <laughs> but, but that's, that, that gives you a very warped conception of what, what Thomas is about. Secondly, uh, Thomas sees himself as a theologian. 
So first and foremost, he sees himself as, a, as it were, a biblical commentator, a, a, a preacher. But then secondly, he sees himself as a theologian. And as a theologian, of course, he's engaging the biblical text, but he's also now trying to engage, as it were, all truths that God has, has, has revealed, certainly um, in, in what we might call special revelation of the scriptures, but also in general revelation. And Thomas is one who, uh, in part because of his engagement with the biblical text, knows that everybody has things to teach him. So Thomas is a committed commentator, not only on scripture, but also on philosophical traditions that he inherits from people like uh, Albert the Great. So Thomas is going to be interacting with folks like Aristotle. He's going to be actor, interacting with folks like Cicero. Um, he's going to be interacting with versions of uh, Platonic philosophy. He's going to be interacting with, with Muslim philosophers of his day, in part because Thomas is trying to provide the church with a with this rich and coherent a vision uh, of, of reality and especially divine and human agency as possible. And then that brings me to the last thing that I wanna say that, it, that connects to the dissertation. Because Thomas is a, is a committed churchman, Thomas is interested in offering teachings that will help to move people further along the road towards their journey to God. So Thomas is one that has a, a deep commitment to what we will call a teleology, to an idea that, that, that creatures are created for certain things, and he believes that human beings are created to, to be in union with God, and he wants to provide teachings that will enable them to journey well to what for him is ultimately the, the Latinist Beatitudos, so to blessedness, to, to being before the face of God, to being in, in, in a robust union with, with, with God and, and the redeemed and, and the redeemed creation. So Thomas is paying close attention to the things that promote human movement, human movement towards the divine or away from the divine, towards neighbor or away from neighbor. And, and, and so Thomas pays extreme attention to the internal realities of human persons. And this is one of the things, again, that most people don't know uh, from their typical presentations of, of Aquinas. They're, they're not going to, and I'll go, by the way, I've probably already been doing this, but I'm going to go back and forth between Thomas and, and Aquinas. This is what mm -hmm. we okay, Thomas Okay, deleted. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but Thomas is paying close attention to how human beings are formed, how we act, why do we act the ways that we do, what are the processes of, of, of habituation and socialization that are going to help us to become more godly or those that are going to actually, he'll put it, corrupt us and, and make it so that we're, we're, we're less godly than, than we should be. So the biggest portions of the Summa Theologiae, which is Thomas's master work, it's Thomas offering a teaching without all of the, what we might call medieval conventions that would come with being a commentator on say this Lombard sentences or on, uh, on Aristotle's uh, Nick ethics. And Thomas is with the Summa offering his own vision of what moral pedagogy could look like from a Christian perspective. And so the first and second parts of what's known as the second part. So quickly, Thomas's Summa has three main parts uh, the first part is primarily about uh, God and God's effects. So you're going to get a focus on God and then what goes out from God. And then the second and third part are especially focused on how is it that creatures are going to make their journey to God. So how are they going to return to God? So people talk about a, an exitus uh, reditus uh, structure to the Summa. So there's a going out from God, that's exitus. And then there's a returning to God, reditus. 
Um, and so Thomas is again paying attention to what it looks like to journey well. So he's he's asking a lot of questions about passions, which are are similar but not identical to what we might mean um, in, in contemporary speak to uh, emotions. In fact, Thomas offers the largest treatment on the passions of any medieval thinker. Uh, it doesn't matter Christian or otherwise. The largest treatment, and and he's going to offer an extensive treatment on virtues and vices and sin and fruits of the spirit and gifts of the spirit and beatitudes and and so forth. Uh, he's going to have a lot of attention on role morality. So what is it that different people are supposed to be doing to help others along the way? But how do we think about the, the unique responsibilities that you'll have? So that's the sort of stuff that you see in what's known as the second part. And then the third part is, okay, how how is it that, that given all that, we see Christ making it so that we can journey to God. And so there's a presentation of how Christ is uh, fully human and fully divine and how Christ is going to serve as a, as a mediator between God and, and human beings. So that that's that's really the layout of, of, of the Summa. Uh, and, and so to focus again on perhaps the ways in which he's thinking about prime movers and so forth in the beginning, th though that, that is important, that, that misses out on the vast sweep of, of the Summa. So I, I hope that helps your 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 uh, your audience to get a sense of what Thomas is up to, and, and why he cares about it. Yeah, I think that's probably like the first time I have heard like a a succinct but very helpful summary of what he's all about. Because again, like I'm only picking up bits bits and pieces throughout my life, right? Yeah. Um, but your dissertation is on. Um, his psychology of fear. Um, what, what I'm interested, maybe if if there's anything that prompted you to go in this direction, maybe outside of like your scholarly context. Yes. So uh, certainly, the, the answer is yes. And, and I'll I'll say this much: I was thinking about the interrelationships between three things. One was Thomistic scholarship. What were what were things that people weren't writing on uh, that that I could address? Because this is this is part of the thing that you're this is one of the questions you're raising when you're thinking about a dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> what is it that I can actually write about? Which is is not an easy thing in Thomas scholarship because people have been writing about Thomas Aquinas for a long, long time in lots of different languages all across the globe. But the, but then I was so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, well I I don't want to dedicate maybe two years of my life rigorously reading and thinking. To something I don't care all that much about, which I've seen people do. And, and, and then I was thinking, and and it's likely that after I finish the dissertation, I'm still going to be writing and publishing quite a bit and, and, and teaching on Aquinas. So I really want to make sure that I care about the, the topic. And so I kept thinking, well, what what would it, what's something that the, that the church could use? I thought a lot about the, the church Catholic. What's something that the church could use? And I kept thinking about how thin most contemporary discussions of fear are most contemporary discussions of fear. People will mention fear all over uh, in a range of disciplines or in everyday life. I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that. But I thought, you know, it seems we could we could all use some deeper reflection on what we mean by fear. What are the forms of fear? What will we mean by uh, courage as a virtue that, that moderates or for, the, for, for Aquinas perfects forms of fear that we would have? And I was thinking about that in terms of the churches need to think more deeply about what's known as resilience literature. So what does it look like to be able to face challenge after challenge after challenge? Uh, but but to do a 
to do that with a robust understanding of what we might call human anthropology. So, so what, what does it mean to take the whole of human beings as, as, as embodied creatures that are gonna experience passions and so forth seriously? Um, and, and then the second thing I kept thinking about was, was racism. And time and again, if you read race scholarship, you're gonna find the word fear and you're gonna talk about, the people will talk about the ways in which there are racialized uh, versions of fear that come with uh, post-colonial well, from like 15th century forward, once you get racialization practices up and running. And so I thought, well, it would it really behoove me and I think the church to retrieve Aquinas's conceptions uh, or his psychology of fear as he develops it. And then after I've retrieved it, I've done that, done justice to the Thomas scholarship. I really want to be thinking about how what Thomas has to say can enhance my understanding of resilience literature and my understanding of, of, of race scholarship, especially reflections on racism. Why is it that people fear racialized minorities in the ways that they that they do, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so far, I have to say, tutoring myself to Thomas Aquinas has been tremendously life-giving. Thomas asks questions I never would have asked. Thomas causes me to think about things that I never would have considered. And he offers such a, a, a rich, as it were, tapestry. And I, I've, I've, I'm hard pressed to find anybody that has such a sweep to the vision of, of Christian theology and moral formation that I think you can find in Aquinas. And so this is helping me as I'm, as I'm working on, uh, as some of your audience might know, a book on critical race theory. Um, and as I'm, I'm hoping, it's probably more like a 10 or 15 year project, but after, after that book is done, I'm hoping to, to offer an account of racism that really does justice to, to, to as much human psychology as I can. So I've, I've done, and in some sense still doing, the rich retrieval, historical retrieval projects, but with an aim to addressing the specific questions that we have now. So I think Thomas helps us a lot, for example, but there are limitations to his account. And so I, I want to make sure I'm not just reinventing the wheel, but also not holding up Aquinas as if like, well, this is all we need to know. Um, yeah, so those were some of the reasons that motivated my decision to write on Aquinas. Thank you for sharing. I'm really looking forward to your forthcoming projects. Uh, so we keep, uh, of course, since your dissertation is on Thomas Aquinas's psychology of fear that keeps coming up naturally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but so can you give us an overview of like, what is what what is the psychology of fear according to Thomas Aquinas? Um, because also, he is really big on categorizing and yep. taxonomy and stuff, right? So could you give yep. us like maybe a little overview yes. of what that is? S certainly. So uh, Tom, the, the, the psychology of fear that, I'm, that I treat in my dissertation is almost exclusively uh, his psychology of human beings. It's not exclusively, though. And this is important because Thomas also accounts for what he will call non-human animals and the ways in which they can fear. Uh, for, for Thomas, there are important similarities between what he'll call human animals and then non-human animals. So, for example, he talks about the ways in which sheep can fear, can fear wolves. Um, so I, I treat a little bit of that, um, but I'm focusing for the most part on his treatment of, of human beings, largely because that's, that, that receives the bulk of his attention. But, but I wanna highlight this because Thomas is, is as a committed, as a committed um, master of the sacred page, he understands that all creation matters to God. And so he's trying to provide a, a vision of, of all creation and the various forms of, of uh, we might call psychological networks that different uh, creatures in creation have. So now 
recognizing that I'm focusing mainly on on what he's uh, on the on the human picture for Thomas, I'll say this: what struck me when I was looking at Thomas's psychology of fear is how outrageously complex it is, and how extensive it is. So Thomas, whereas many people will say, okay, well, there's there's maybe one we have fear and it's an emotion and that's largely the extent of their reflections on fear as an emotion yeah there's there's one thing called fear and then maybe they'll say oh, there there is a, a virtue that's indexed to, to fear that's courage thomas says well there's not just one form of fear thomas in fact identifies six species of fear so kinds of fear uh but then he goes on to expound on more types of, uh, of fear. So Thomas is going to say, no, we need to be more fine-grained in our understanding of what we would mean by fear. There are multiple forms of fear, and those different forms of fear, have uh, they come with different kinds of effects for human experiences. So there are certain forms of fear that leave you paralyzed. You, you, can't, you can't move. You can't think. There are other kinds of fear that actually help to kickstart certain forms of deliberation. So Thomas says these are importantly different, though they're related. So how, how might we make sense of that? But Thomas is also going to say, uh, so not only are we going to have different species uh, of fear, as they use his, his phrase, but he's going to say, well, we, we also have to understand that there's more than just one virtue that's connected to fear. Uh, he says there are two. There's courage and then there's perseverance. And he thinks that these oftentimes will work in tandem. And I'm happy to say more about what those virtues are according to Thomas later on. But then Thomas says, now I, I've laid out the fact that there are passions of fear. There are different uh, categories of fear. I've laid out that there are these virtues, but if we're talking about virtues for, for Aquinas, that means we're talking about things that perfect the experiences of fear that you have. So for Thomas, human perfection doesn't involve the eradication of experiencing fear. It involves the perfection of how we experience fear. So fearing the right things for the right reasons at the right time to the right extent, etc. So if you have virtues that are connected to that, that are perfecting it, that also means this side of the fall, Thomas is going to say, there are ways in which we can go awry. And Thomas is going to distinguish between certain sinful actions, so certain sinful instances of fear, from what he's going to call vices of fear, vices of fear. So for Thomas, a virtue is a habit that promotes good actions, promotes godly actions. A vice is a habit that promotes corrupted and evil actions. So Thomas will talk about having the vice of cowardice and uh, the vice of, fearless, uh, of fearlessness. So you can have um, a habit that makes it so that as you get a whole range of experiences of fear, you're routinely, as it were, tucked in and not engaging something that's a, a threatening evil. Or you could be the sort of person that's like, ah, I'm not afraid at all. And you just poof, go full hog after all sorts of things. And Tom's like, no, neither of those are good. There are things that we that we should that we should fear. And to act as if that's not true is to get lost in a delusion, is Thomas's point. But then Thomas is going to say, well, okay, if there are good ways of having fear, and there, um, so there are good acts of fear, then there are good vice, there are virtues that can produce good forms of fear or help to perfect the kinds of fear that we have, and then there are these vices that can lead us to have uh, negative forms or sinful forms of fear. Thomas is going to say, well, we also have to ask, how how is it that Christ relates to all of that? So for Aquinas, Christ both provides uh, satisfaction for sin. 
but every every act that Christ performs, Thomas is going to argue, is also a source of instruction. So for Aquinas, Christ was fearful, but without sin. So he, that's important to, to Aquinas because that means that, that Christ can atone for the sins of those who experience inordinate fear is the category that Thomas is going to use. But it's also the case that as you look at the instances of fear that Christ has, you can learn, well, what would good, godly, human fears look like? Last thing I'd mention is as, as Thomas is thinking about how we relate even to Christ as an instructor, he doesn't leave us there because Thomas is deeply Trinitarian. For Thomas, the only way that human beings ultimately make it to God, experience deep abiding union with God, is by the Spirit, we could say, applying the work of Christ. So for Thomas, we also need to ask, well, what's it look like for human beings that are, that, that are redeemed by Christ to experience forms of fear that could be uh, good or bad, but also know that the Spirit's at work? In, 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 their, in their lives. So Thomas is trying to give an account of what kinds of fears we could have that are going to be spirit-empowered, and this gets to his discussion, what he calls the gift of fear. And for him, this is something that's uh, another habit that enables us to respond to the promptings of the spirit. And in particular, for Thomas, the gift of fear has to do with growing in loving reverence for the triune God growing and loving reverence. So all the discussions of, of fears, the beginning of wisdom that you're going to get in, in Proverbs, those ultimately get, get fleshed out for, for Thomas in terms of uh, reflections on what it means to walk with the Spirit as a being that God has, uh, has called to experience a certain kind of, of, of reverence. And this is one of the things that, to note here is that reverence, Thomas does not think, comes apart from divine grace. It doesn't come apart from divine agency. So that's that's a little bit of an overview. There are a lot of details for every single aspect of what I've said, and it gets highly complicated because Thomas is he is a medieval uh, biblical scholar, yes, but also a medieval uh, theologian and, and and philosopher. So I, I, I'm trying to make sure I don't get lost in in some of the minutia. But I, uh, yeah, that's 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 as it were the skeletal sketch. Sure. Thank you for listening to Seminary for the Rest of Us. Really grateful for your support. If you want to stay updated, go to seminary.show. If you have any questions, any questions at all, particularly related to theological or biblical studies, make sure to send them to seminary.show at gmail.com. And if you're lucky, I will answer them with the help of my guest on the show. There are lots of ways to stay connected, so make sure you check out all of the social media handles in the show notes, as well as a way to support us financially if you feel led. And also make sure to give us a rating if you're on Apple Podcasts. That's a quick, easy, and free way to support this tiny project and boost our visibility. Thanks again and catch you next time.